Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Tom Switzer. It's great to have your company here today. And uh, as I was saying to my colleagues uh, this morning, we had our first staff meeting since we had these dreadful storms that uh, hit the third floor balcony of our building at 131 Macquarie Street. That subsequently put a lot of pressure on the second floor and that meant that we on the first floor copped it on Monday morning. And I said to them, uh, you know, we had these dreadful bushfires uh, throughout the course of December and January with that dreadful smoky feeling across the city and now we've been hit by these storms. Uh, and at this stage I felt a bit like that John Cleese character in Faulty Towers when the hotel inspector reads out the long list of complaints about the hotel and Basil Faulty replies, otherwise okay. <laughs> Matt, thank you so much for hosting us tonight. It's wonderful uh, to be here. And of course the event is a more serious event than anything to do with Faulty Towers and that of course is coronavirus. At last count, uh, the death toll uh, from the virus outbreak in mainland China had reached 1,886 with nearly 72,500 people affected. Uh, that's the infections confirmed at least. The Chinese province where the virus originated, and now remember this has a population greater than South Korea, that is under quarantine. The World Health Organization has declared that coronavirus is a global emergency. So as a result, Australia is among many governments across the world uh, that's putting in place strict immigration bans as the pandemic spreads. Now, according to some scholars, the outbreak of this new and deadly epidemic is exposing the vulnerabilities of China's top-down authoritarian regime. Zhu Zhangrun is a professor of Tsinghua University and he has declared in the last week or so that China has reached a dangerous dead end and the coronavirus has exposed the bankruptcy of its rulers. Now it's worth noting that Professor Zhang Run has not been seen or heard of in the last week. Now others will disagree with Professor Zhang Run and they would argue that Beijing has handled the crisis better than anyone had the right to expect given the SARS epidemic in 2002-2003. And in response to the crisis, the regime has locked down cities, cut transport links, and is rapidly building new hospitals and medical facilities. So, could coronavirus change China in fundamental ways? Should it change the way that we in Australia regard China? Remember, our largest trade partner that many economists credit for helping us weather the global financial storm more than a decade ago. Will China's rise continue unabated as it has over the last four decades? Richard Haas, one of America's most distinguished foreign policy thinkers, has noted, quote, China's economic ascent, now in its fifth decade, began only after Deng Xiaoping reversed Mao Zedong's policies. The potential for political instability exists, Haas argues, as China remains a brittle system. Now, if Richard Haas is right, could we see a Xi-led China turn to nationalism as a distraction in a wag-the-dog scenario in which China would put pressure on Hong Kong and Taiwan? Or could we see a China turn inward amid political convulsion as Xi himself is challenged. Remember, Xi Jinping is widely regarded as the most authoritarian, assertive leader in China since 
Mao Zedong? Or are all these concerns overblown? Meanwhile, as the Chief of the Australian Defence Force, Angus Campbell, has implied, is Beijing engaged in political warfare against Australia and other regional interests and nations? Or have the critics just spread exaggerations about the China threat, which has sowed misunderstandings about our largest trade partner? Well, we have a terrific panel to discuss these issues, and I'll introduce each panellist one at a time. First, Doug Bandow. He's a CIS scholar in residence for 2020. Every year, thanks to the generous support of one of our longtime supporters, Simon Moore, um, we host uh, an international scholar here at CIS for a month, and that scholar is Doug Bandow. Doug was a senior special assistant to President Ronald Reagan back in the early 80s, hard to believe, nearly 40 years ago, Doug. Uh, he has emerged as one of America's leading foreign policy thinkers, taking issue with the orthodoxy in Washington about American global leadership for much of the post-Cold War era. He's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Doug Bandow. Natasha Kassam, she's a research fellow in diplomacy and heads the public opinion program at the Lowy Institute for International Affairs, just on Bly Street. She's also a former diplomat, and she's author of what I think is one of the best articles on Taiwan and China that was published in early December, uh, and she preempted the results of the Taiwanese elections. The headline was, China has lost Taiwan, and it knows it. Natasha Kassam. <laughs> Vicky Xu. She's been a journalist with the New York Times and a researcher currently for the Australian Strategic Policy Institute in Canberra. That's the Cyber Policy Centre. She's also, of all things, uh, a comedian. Uh, <laughs> please welcome Vicky. <laughs> Sue Windybank has been affiliated with CIS for more than two decades. She's a convener of our China program, which we launched about a year ago. Please welcome Sue Windybank. And finally, our moderator, Salvatore Babones, uh, is a professor of sociology at the University of Sydney, American by background. Uh, we employed him recently as an adjunct fellow here at CIS. Uh, some of you may be familiar with Salvatore. Uh, he's published many prominent papers uh, for CIS uh, that have got a lot of international attention. One of them is, is most recently in today's front page of The Australian. Top unis face $1.2 billion virus hit. And Salvatore makes the point, he's, he's really just highlighting the political and economic impact of uh, coronavirus and the outbreak on the higher education sector. And um, he makes the point that this analysis shows the fallout from the epidemic could wipe as much as $1.2 billion uh, from the economy. Uh, please welcome Salvatore Babones. <laughs> and Salvatore is our moderator. Over to you, Salvatore. Thanks, Tom. Uh, and well, welcome everybody. Thank you for coming tonight. Uh, I'd like to point out that when this virus first broke, when the news first broke December 31st, there were a few cases. By the time our invitation went out for this event, and many of you will have received this invitation on January 31st, the original invitation said, the coronavirus has infected more than 8,000 people and killed close to 200. Well, that was then, this is now. We're only 19 days later. The official statistics are at 73,000 infected, 1,873 deaths, according to the World Health Organization. Uh, and it's not just in Wuhan. 
uh, more than a thousand cases each in Henan, which is also in central China, and Guangdong province in south China, that's where Guangzhou is, and in Zhejiang in eastern China, that's where Hangzhou is, the headquarters of Alibaba. These are economically important centers. Now, none of us are epidemiologists. We're not here to discuss the epidemiology of the virus, but we are here to discuss the political and economic impacts. I'd like to start uh, with a question for Natasha, and I'd like to start this kind of at a more personal level and then broaden out to uh, the bigger, big picture economic and political impacts. But Natasha, uh, look, how are things on the ground in China? What is life like in a locked down country? Yeah, I, thank you for having me, and hi to everybody. Look, I think that's it's a hard question to answer at the best of times. I measure public opinion, and we do that generally through surveys, and there's no way to have reliable so surveys in China. So instead, you look at social media, and looking at social media, again, in an incredibly censored and repressive state, it's quite hard to know exactly what is happening. I think for a lot of people, there is boredom. You know, a lot of friends and people I know in cities in China have been at home for two or three weeks, too scared to go out. For a lot of people, there is anxiety. Of course, there's so much concern. There's, if we don't have much information, neither do people on the ground. And then there is anger. There's a lot of anger at people who are directing it at different places. Just imagine if you are home for weeks on end, you're staring at your phone for weeks on end. At one point, 10 million people were watching the construction of a new hospital online, right? I think that's a sign that really people are at home, people are upset and they're really worried about their families and their friends. And so that anger, I think, has been directed variously at local authorities, at the central authorities, occasionally at, at the Americans. You know, depending on what the story is at the time, it really can move around. Uh, a real turning point in terms of sentiment on the ground was the 7th of February when um, an ophthalmologist, Dr. Li Wenliang, uh, died. And he had been somebody who had tried to tell other medical professionals that this was a serious problem. And that, I think, was a moment where we saw a real outpouring of grief and sadness in China that reflects what's been a really terrible time for millions of people. It's easy to talk about numbers, I think, but we kind of forget, I think, that these are real people that are, you know, thousands of people that are dying or that are sick or under lockdown. Well, I mean, let's think about that more personal side. Vicky, I, I, I believe you're the only person on the panel who actually grew up in China, the rest of you speak of as we did. Um, what's it like to be watching this epidemic from the safety of Australia? You must have friends and family in China who are affected. What's your reaction? Uh, well, first of all, I was, I, I have been very worried uh, about my friends and family. Um, the city where I come from um, in northwest China, uh, the roads were blocked for a few days because there is, you know, there's people stopped trusting the government and um, cities stopped trusting each other to take, um, you know, um, adequate um, protection and measures. So the roads were blocked and my, you know, my parents stopped going out and I worry if they have enough masks to wear. Um, but then, also, as you know, someone who used to work for and still work for the media, 
I look at how journalists and my friends who work for the media are being censored and silenced. And so far as far as I as, as far as I know, there are two citizen journalists that have gone to Wuhan and disappeared. So one of the things that really disappoint and, and sadden me is how in times of crisis, this is this is such a common, this comes again and again, that the Chinese government censors and silences people, you know, like Dr. Li Wenliang, the whistleblowers and reporters who try to tell the truth. I mean, this time the media has had more space and room to talk about the crisis than during SARS in the early 2000s, but it's not great. And uh, it's, it's, it's disappointing to watch and um, saddening, yeah. I mean, this isn't just a China epidemic. I mean, Doug, you know China's neighbors are next in line. We've already seen cases in you know, Vietnam and South Korea and Japan. What are the implications of the coronavirus for the neighboring countries in East Asia? Well, of course, China's economic role in East Asia is huge. And that, you know, with economic uh, you know, development, with trade, with commerce come people. And China has also, as it's developed, it, actually you have a lot of tourists. I mean, the, the kind of the, the number of Chinese who travel and the number of people who travel to China is extraordinary. And of course, it's not just Asia. I mean, a lot of Americans, Europeans. I mean, this is a global trade and a global commerce. And that clearly is a transmission belt. And China has been very critical of the U.S. and other countries for cutting off. About 78 countries have essentially suspended the entry of Chinese. I mean, this is very widespread. 30 different airlines have cut you know, the transportation. So it's not just Australia. Like no, that, exactly. This is a, and indeed, I mean, Hong Kong itself started restricting Chinese coming in before the U.S. did. So did Russia. I mean, this is a very common reaction because you understand if you don't know how the transmission rates and you don't know the death rates, it is a very scary thing to introduce this in. And China's reputation in this area is not good. I mean, in SARS, it was very slow. And it's not just SARS. I mean, China has had issues in terms of you know, train derailments, earthquakes, schools going down. There have been a lot of these areas where clearly an effort was made to protect the party, protect local officials. So there's, a, uh, there's not much willingness to give the benefit of the doubt to the Chinese authorities. So this matters a lot. I mean, Australia obviously is facing this with students, universities. I mean, you know, who do you bring in? But we see the complexity. We've had these ships, and we see a big one out there. I mean, ships wandering around. Nobody wants to let it stop. Cambodia welcomed one, let everybody off, and they tested somebody and found at least one person is now infected. Well, who knows how much further that goes? So th this is this has huge implications, and I don't think we're I don't think we're at the end of it. I mean, I think we're very much in the middle of a process that's very ugly and very dangerous. Thanks, I'm, Sue. Let me shift a gear to politics. Uh, when we first started talking about putting on a panel, you were the first person, this was mid-January, who mentioned the, the term Chernobyl moment, that this could be China's Chernobyl moment. Now that phrase is all over the media. Uh, I mean, I've seen that a dozen times since, but you were the first person I heard actually suggest that. Can you explain what you meant by that and whether this is China's Chernobyl moment? Thank, thank you, uh, Salvatore. Yes, there's since been, I've seen dozens of references, op-eds in, in mainly American and UK media, but also veiled and sometimes less veiled references um, to Chernobyl on, by Chinese netizens in talking about the government handling of the crisis, particularly uh, at lower levels, and also this, this uh, 
instinct, this impulse in top-down repressive one-party states like the former Soviet Union and present-day China to control information and, and, and suppress news, often for self-serving reasons, uh, self-preservation or regime survival or whatever. But I think I haven't actually seen the miniseries Chernobyl, which is what some of the Chinese netizens were commenting on, so I'm not sure how accurate it is as a historical record. But I do think the significance of Chernobyl in terms of the gradual unravelling of the Soviet Union five years later was somewhat overshadowed by some very dramatic events that we would all remember in 1989 through to, to 1991. But when you think back, I really do think it was the first crack in the Soviet state that really opened up uh, and, as we know, within five years... Um, it, uh, the law of unintended consequences had kicked in and the regime had dissolved in a woodland setting. Because it was something that couldn't be kept under wraps. It couldn't be kept under wraps, but I do think there are some important differences. And the first is that by then the Soviet economy was moribund, right? Whereas China is an economic success story, it is now recording its lowest growth um, for three decades, but it is no way, in no way flatlining the way the Soviet Union was. Yeah, we can. <laughs> yeah. Um, the second point is that there's no uh, Chinese Gorbachev on the, on the horizon, and I think that was a key factor. I mean, if he hadn't been in power, he came to power a year before Chernobyl, and he had already indicated he was going to bring in Glasnost and Perestroika, and I think the, the crisis actually allowed him to sideline some of his conservative opposition. Um, but as I said, the law of unintended consequences um, kicked in. Uh, and I think, you know, an, an another factor to bear in mind is that the Soviet Union at that time was bogged down in a useless, unwinnable war in Afghanistan. So it was all and up, it was at a pretty low ebb and in a pretty dilapidated and fragile state. So I think there are some important differences, but as Chinese netizens and other commentators have noticed as well, there are some intriguing and interesting parallels. Well, let me actually follow up on this to the whole panel. Does this incident, does the coronavirus and it, the space it opens uh, actually open a, a, a new era of potential repression in China because people will accept repression in order to maintain public health? Or does it undermine confidence in the government and actually make repression more difficult? I mean, is this going to lead to a more repressive China or a less repressive China? Um, I think it's going to be a more repressive China. I think all indicators are, I think Natasha and, and Vicky were both mentioning there was a little window where there was some space for um, citizen journalists and media to report on, on what was going on on the ground and perhaps that was a strategy to allow people to vent. But I think we're seeing very clearly now that the central government is taking over the narrative, you know, it's a people's war and cracking down and controlling information again. So I think in that respect, we're going to see that this from crisis comes opportunity as far as Xi Jinping goes and it'll be an opportunity to, to tighten the grip on power. But I think in terms of Chinese citizens, um, there are already fairly low levels of trust in what, you know, the party state media reports, and I think this further undermines trust in what they're being told. Other panelists, which way will this go? Well, I think there are two different issues here. Where does the government go? Where do the people go? I don't think that Xi Jinping needs an invitation to repress. I mean, in my view, we're moving back to Maoist totalitarianism. We're seeing personality cult being created, the emphasis on personal authority and party authority, extraordinary repression of religious liberty, a million Uyghurs in re-education camps, you know, further you know, kind of tightening of the internet, the, the, the kind of dis disappearance of 
a certain issues and, and thought debate that was allowed as long as it didn't challenge the party. My institute long worked with a group called the Uni Rule Institute. It was economists who advocated reform. I was there last July. They'd been pushed into the third headquarters, and it was right before their business license was pulled. They're now out of business. The executive director cannot travel. For years, we held conferences with them. So I mean, so you're seeing, so I think that movement is there. This accelerates it. But it accelerates it particularly because the party does feel threatened. I mean, Dr. Lee's, the thing about Dr. Lee's death was not just that here is somebody who heroically tried to get the notice out. He was an ophthalmologist. But he, he engaged in trying to save lives and he dies. He's only 34, I think. I mean, this shows that this does not just kill the elderly. But the fact is the police shut him up. He was one of eight doctors who were told to sign a statement that they had been sending out gossip and misleading information was threatened with detention if he did not admit that he was lying. This caused an explosion on social media where among other things people were saying, I want freedom of speech. Now the, the authorities quickly kind of cracked down and tried to remove this, but they understood they were in danger and they suddenly said, oh, he's a hero now. We've seen a bit with, you know, she, I mean the interesting question is where was she? Early on, he seemed to have disappeared. They sent the premier off to Wuhan. My theory is he's sidelined anyway. Who cares if he gets sick, you know, too bad. But this was an internal issue. It's just like Scott Morrison saying the states should handle the wildfires before it became but, but too it, big. But it's huge in terms of the legitimacy of the regime. You know, she has been presented as the core of the party. She, you know, everyone, I, I mean, she is, and they put his thoughts into the Constitution. I mean, this is a centralization of authority so it's very hard to say things are going on without him being involved. And so originally it didn't look like he's involved. Well, now he showed up. And among other things, they said, well, he, in January 7th, I think it was, he gave a speech and he, you know, he told a Politburo, you know, that they needed to do something. Well, it's created criticism on uh, social media saying, well, why didn't he tell anybody else if he knew this way back? So I think the regime has some trouble here. So I think that we're seeing two things. The regime will tend to go towards repression I think we're seeing an undermining of the, the narrative that there's competence, omniscience, trustworthiness. I don't think it brings down the regime today, but I think it means future crises, there's simply less trust there, the crisis comes sooner. Vicky, Natasha? Um, I will, yeah, I think Doc has a really good point on the social media, what is appearing. So, you know, how because of Dr. Lee Wenliang's death, people are demanding freedom of speech. And I want to know that, you know, I've been on Chinese social media for, for so long, and uh, a lot of, you know, other commentators have similar feelings. In the past five years, there hasn't been demands for freedom, more freedom, and more freedom of speech at this scale. Like, this is unprecedented. Dr. Lee Wenliang really, really um, inspired something. Um, the question is how long this is going to last. This is a spark, and if it's going to light a, fi light a fire, and um, my personal opinion is it wouldn't, um, be just because there is a complete lack of civil society, and you know, and the lack of civil so uh, civil society is the reason why China is dealing with this crisis so poorly. And in terms of if this is going to undermine the power base of the Chinese regime. Um, I also don't think so. I, I think what I see how China is dealing with coronavirus fits into a very long pattern of dealing with crisis poorly and you know man-made crisis. Um, and personally, I think you know coronavirus will be contained you know sooner or later. And once that happens, 
Xi Jinping will come out, President Xi will come out and claim victory, and you know people will move on just like Wenchuan earthquake, just like SARS. And I, I, I really don't think it's going to be any different. Um, so I think Vicky is right. I think that we won't see any kind of widespread change now. And I really, I do agree with what everybody has said here. What I think is important to not conflate is the legitimacy of the party and people's, I guess, love of the party or admiration. So in, insofar as people might be frustrated or not have trust in the party as a result of this and many other man-made crises that have been referred to, what does that actually mean? If 90% of Chinese people woke up tomorrow saying, actually, we don't think the party's working for us anymore, purely hypothetical, what power do they have to organize? What power do they have to make their voices heard under this system? And so, to my mind, you know, legitimacy in the end comes back to state power. It doesn't really require this so-called contract with the people, not in the same way, not right now. The mishandling of this crisis and others, and this one I think is different because it touches so many people. In the past, you know, the high-speed rail crash in Wenzhou, for example, everybody was very upset about it, but they were removed from it. Nobody is a spectator in this particular crisis. Everybody feels it to some level. So that might foster maybe a new generation of people who see a need for reform, but I think that's a very long-term kind of uh, a long-term thing to think about. And I just wanted to say another thing about Dr. Li Wenliang. I think one of the reasons his story has resonated for so many people is that he's not a whistleblower in the kind of traditional sense that we think of. He's not a dissident in China who's trying to raise the alarm and call for freedom of speech. What he did was share some information about a new virus in a private group with other medical professionals to say, hey, watch out, this looks a little bit like SARS, wear gloves if you're treating people like this. And that, at that moment, right, is not illegal, it's not classified information, it, there's nothing wrong with sharing it, but it's just a sign of just how much China has changed over the past few years that, yes, you have your red lines, you can't talk about, I don't know, Taiwan or Xinjiang, but this, this was medical information being shared privately, and that becomes illegal in this system. And I will just add one thing. Even Dr. Li Wenli, I think people can really resonate with him because actually after he passed away, people realized that Dr. Li Wenli, during Hong Kong, the protests, he was actually reposting... Um, Weibo posts that were praising the Chinese state's efforts to suppress the protests. He's very much, he's like the majority of Chinese people. He's nationalistic, he's loyal to the party, and that's why you know, silencing him was so unbearable for a lot of netizens. I, let me ask for really Natasha and Vicky, but for anyone else who wants to jump in, you know, here in liberal democracies, during times of national emergency, most people will accept impositions or restrictions on freedoms, uh, you know, they'll obey government laws that they might protest against in ordinary times. You know, we'll accept a lot if the reason is public health, public safety, you know, keeping the country safe. Do you think that this crisis will have that kind of effect in China, that people will be much more accepting of government surveillance and punishments and uh, the quarantines that are going on because they view it as a national emergency? In my personal opinion, like I've lived in Australia for a significant time and also in China, 
if I can be so frank, Australia is a bit of a nanny state, right? A lot of rules and regulations, and people, sorry, people generally. I, I, I call it a, I call it a, a multi-party China when I describe it to people. <laughs> I might borrow that. Um, there are a lot of rules, and people generally follow them. But in China, because there are so many rules, so everywhere, people actually don't follow them all the time. People are very sneaky, and we always try to find a way, trying to find a loophole and try to push the boundaries. So even with the quarantine, you just see people trying to sneak out of the city. People try to go back home, and you know, you or you have been working like you know in another province for an entire year, and you just want to go home to see your family. And the state says you can't because you might carry virus. What do you care? So you see people try, try, trying to maneuver on. So yeah, I, 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 I don't think they, you know, um, coronavirus means people are going to be more rule following or less rule following. I think, I, you know, even my own family, when I tell them, please don't have a Lunar New Year dinner together, don't eat with 12 other people, they don't listen, they don't care. Natasha, any thoughts on that? Yeah. I. I generally agree. I can't see that it dramatically changing behavior. The thing that I would say is if all of these measures, which some people think have been too extreme, I mean, uh, Sue talked a little bit about the kind of CCP playbook. And one of those things is, I think, to underreact, cover up, and then go from zero to 180 in three seconds and to overreact and to suddenly put 11 million people under lockdown, right? If all of these measures, some of which that are seen, are seen as too extreme, too much, uh, you know, we've all seen these videos of people who are being forcibly quarantined and leaving their children at home and being wrestled into vans, put into warehouses with people that are really sick, you know, really tragic, awful things. Those things maybe won't change people's behavior if they work, right? We're still in the middle of it, as you said yourself. If, you know, if we can call 70,000 cases, if that is the peak of it, if it doesn't get so much worse, then maybe in the future people would accept the same level of surveillance and state imposition that they have in the past. But if it fails, if there's a real awful epidemic that goes even further, it's already horrible, if it gets worse, then I can see maybe a little more resistance than what Vicky is describing. Well, you know, we didn't trust you before and now we trust you even less. So it's highly... Um, you know, I'm, it's just me kind of being predictive, but I really think that we're still in the middle of it in terms of how that plays out. Doug, please. I think the regime certainly doesn't assume that people will obey. I mean, uh, one of the top leaders, I, I can't remember if it's the deputy premier, which one criticized like des essentially uh, quarantine deserters, you know, that these people will be viewed, you know, as enemies in the future, et cetera. The new rules for Beijing are if you come from somewhere else and come back to Beijing, you're supposed to go into self-quarantine. And it, they did not act as if they believed people would do that on their own. They threatened. I mean, they, you have to you know, go to the, the neighborhood, watch people, and, and we will track you down. I mean, it was very much a sense of, you know, these people don't like this and are probably going to be resisting. When they decided to quarantine Wuhan, they announced tomorrow we're going to start the, you know, the quarantine at 10 o'clock. Everyone rushed to airports and the train station, changed their tickets, tried to get out of there. And there are these stories of people who would end up flying into Singapore and they go on you know, social media and say, oh, I got out of Wuhan. And then, I mean, this kind of avalanche attacking them for why, why on earth are you leaving? You're going to infect. So I think this is, uh, there's a lot of folks here. I think the idea of kind of get away around the rules, I think that's there and that's clearly understood. And that's Please, yeah. uh, just, again, that's because a, a lack of a civil society and people don't 
intent to think about others and you know what their individual choices mean for the entire society, and then this happens. Right. Doug, let, let me stay with you and ask about international relations. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, who, for those of you who don't know, is the Democratic uh, uh, Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives. She just impeached Donald Trump unsuccessfully, and yet her European hosts were shocked this week when she told them that they should not be allowing Huawei to run their networks. You know, they were shocked to find out that it's not only Donald Trump who doesn't like Huawei, the Democrats don't like Huawei either. Uh, I think, uh, well, I'm wondering, to what extent is coronavirus having that same kind of effect on Australia that it's maybe cementing political opinion about China that was equivocal, that we, had, we heard a lot the last few years about should, should Australia dial down its U.S. relationship to become, allow more uh, closer relations with China? Is this the nail in the coffin of the rapprochement between Australia and China? I think geographically, if nothing else, the answer is no to that. That is, you have to live with China. I mean, you know, China's the dominant power in East Asia. The U.S. is always going to be far away. And I think at some point, Americans are going to get tired of defending the world. I mean, you know, the Europeans, you know, the Germans spend 1.2% of GDP on the military. You know, why should America defend them? They're rich and they don't want to spend money. Okay, fine. I mean, America is effectively bankrupt. And the U.S. lectures the world. The latest budget estimates of the U.S. will run a, a trillion dollar, that is U.S. dollar, deficit every year in the coming years. I mean, it's, and there's no, there's no fiscal crisis. So the U.S. has extraordinary problems. I mean, it wanders around the world telling everyone what to do. It ha does not have its own fiscal house in order. And I think that's going to have huge implications for America's role in the world. So, I mean, I think that don't assume that America will always rush to everybody's, you know. And, and I think that Trump is probably the first of a succession of people who are going to be talking in some of these terms. Sanders, to some degree. A little bit of that. I mean, so I think American policy is going to be very interesting in that regard. I think that what the coronavirus shows is the danger of being dependent on any particular country, especially countries that have extraordinary vulnerabilities. I mean, I think if you look at the coronavirus, set aside the issue of the form of government, which I think has a unique problem, no government could easily deal with this. And it came at an awful time for China. It's the Lunar New Year. I mean, there's the mass movement of population. You know, so that, you know, I, I mean, and as well as, you know, they haven't cleaned up wet markets, the sale of wild, I mean, there's a whole bunch of things there. And much of that has nothing particularly to do with repressive government and a lot to do with a lot of other things. So you can argue maybe that's not the best place to have a supply chain. But you could imagine some of the same things happening in Vietnam, Cambodia, Thailand, Indonesia. I mean, they all have, you go out in the provinces, you go out to the Moluccan Islands in Indonesia. I mean, so I think that this suggests a certain danger of dependency. And I think the Huawei, for China, this has come at a very bad time because a lot of other things are happening that are kind of hurting its reputation. There's Taiwan. There's Hong Kong. There's the trade war with the U.S. I mean, there's a lot of things going on. China is likely to be an election issue. The Democrats are very likely to attack Trump for being too pro-Chinese. He said a lot of things, very strange things about President Xi, how wonderful their relationship is and their buddy buddies. Yeah, I mean, utterly nutty stuff, but this is what you expect from President Trump. Um, so this is likely to be an So some of what she's doing is an election issue. So I think it had, she would do that irrespective of coronavirus. Coronavirus is an add-on and an emotional 
attachment that makes it easier to make these attacks. But I do think that there's a lot of security issues which Australia needs to deal with, which I think in many ways are separate from coronavirus, very serious, important, and I wouldn't do it just in a transitory issue of coronavirus. You need to think long-term about how do you deal with a China that's close by and the U.S. that's further away. And I think Australians might be surprised to hear you say that the Democrats will be attacking Trump for being too close to China as opposed to being too much of a China hawk. I mean, Sue, how do you think this is going to play out in Australia? Is the, is the China debate, where is, what's the temperature of the China debate in Australia? Oh, well, I think, you know, Doug mentioned the point before about dependency, and we've certainly been having this debate in Australia for a couple of years now, that we are too dependent on, on China for export markets, and the cry is always to diversify. Um, and people have been saying, well, that's easier said and done, but the government has been making an effort reaching out trade agreement with Indonesia, talking to Vietnam, etc. Um, but I think there's a broader issue, which I, I think both um, Doug and Vicky and even Natasha were mentioning before about trust. I think the past few years has seen um, fairly low levels of trust in the bilateral relationship. And to some extent, I think you can see that uh, with how quickly the travel bans were, were issued, um, because we can't really be sure. We've got doubts about the extent to which the Chinese authorities are telling us everything we need to know. And I really think um, that has exacerbated already low levels of trust. But at the same time, we can see how important it is to still have lines of communication open because we have to negotiate to get citizens out on evacuation flights, flights quickly. Um, but I think the issue of Huawei, I mean, there are many dimensions to that. But once again, I think in terms of Huawei, but also in terms of other foreign investment in, in critical or sensitive areas. And once again, I think it, there is a question of trust that it comes down to. And you can have all the protocols in place, but essentially, how do you enforce that? There's an element of goodwill. Um, so going forward, I think, I think that's going to be a problem for the, for the relationship. Right, and so staying with Australia, and uh, obviously I'll, I'll go to Vicky with this in a moment, but you asked me at lunch today about accusations of racism in Australia or occurrences of anti-Chinese racism in Australia? Is it on the rise? Are people using the coronavirus as an excuse for their racism? Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? And then obviously I'd love to hear Vicky's Well, I don't, I don't think the government yeah. policy response could be considered racist um, at all. Um, probably sending some evacuees to Christmas Island, which is a, a prison centre, the optics weren't the greatest. Um, but look, yeah, some people whose opinion I really value f seem to have hit a tipping point with what they say, uh, just, you know, stereotyping of Chinese eating habits as, you know, uh, unhygienic and exotic and weird and all that sort of thing, um, and, and, and feel that there is a, an edge to the debate um, and, and xenophobia. Um, look, there's a difference between being alarmed about someone coughing of Chinese appearance um, and being racist. I mean, I've, I was at the dentist the other day and I had a, she had a doctor in just before me and she said, he's been absolutely inundated by people who said, oh, a, a person of Chinese appearance coughed on the street, can I come in for a consultation? I don't think that's racist, that's just alarmist and just plain silly, right? Um, so look, there's racism in every society. I'd be interested to hear your views, um, Vicky, in particular, but um, do I... I I don't think it's motivating the debate, but yeah, there are there are there is racism on the fringes. Vicky, racism, alarmism, shunning—is that where does that fit in? What, what's your own perspective on all this? <coughs> um, <laughs> she said she was a comedian, right? <laughs> that was a bad. What about cough. your hotel chicken? 
Um, I think, well, well, first of all, I wanted to say how uh, Speaker Pelosi may be able to attack Trump on China. I, I mean, I think to view, um, you know, the China debate in both the U.S. and Australia, I think there is basic um, bipartisan understanding, you know, what kind of a state and what kind of leadership China has right now. And, you know, you have the Uyghur bill and the Hong Kong bill passing. And here in Australia as well, I think we have reached the point where both parties more or less understand China can be threatening. China is a rising power that we need to be careful, aware of. And, you know, we need to come up with ways to deal with that. I think I think the debate has evolved to a point where we know this is the new reality. No one is saying that China's benign and China isn't trying to inf influence anyone. But we're, we're thinking what to do. In terms of racism, so I think in the past two or three years, the, the debate has been intense. You know, what do we do with Chinese interference? And what does it mean for the Chinese community here, diaspora community? And a lot, there's a lot of anxiety and worry, you know, about is this, does this mean a new era of yellow peril? And personally, I think this concern that, you know, a debate about China and Chinese interference means a potential to exclude the Chinese you know, community. I, I, I don't think that's valid. But I do think, um, you know, because there is growing worry. There is growing worry even among the international students. You know, Australia doesn't seem to like us right now. What do we do? So I think, you know, coronavirus at this time, it's actually a perfect opportunity for Australia and the Australian government to show the Chinese community that they are being included. They are perfectly fine to be here. And um, Given that, Christmas Island is justifiable, but just not a great look. And um, just one more small thing. And I was going to say, Scott Morrison um, visited Box Hill on Monday, and he said, well, Chinese community, please go out as usual. I allow you to. Well, I, I think this address should be addressed, you know, this speech should be addressed to general Australians. You know, please do not exclude the Chinese communities and please treat them as usual. Right. Natasha, you want to jump in? Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, maybe the opposite of how to do that was, I think there was a news story, which was this bipartisan show of support. It was Senator Penny Wong and Senator Birmingham out eating Chinese food in Chinatown in South Australia, saying, hey, these businesses are struggling and that's not fair. And that's maybe kind of a better message to deliver than one directed at the Chinese community. Um, not that it's for me to say. I would just add two quick points. One is that, you know, it's only an interesting panel if we disagree, right? <laughs> and um, I think that it is silly that people are going to the doctor to say somebody Chinese uh, sneezed on me. I also do think it is racism. I think of it from the perspective of the person who is sitting on the train I take to Chatswood every day and they look like they might be of Chinese background, more likely than not they're Australian and people don't want to sit next to them. And I really worry about that in our community and I think that is racism. And the other point I just wanted to make was in Australia, at least as a multicultural society, while there are many concerning strands of racism that we need to be prepared for, the thing that I'm really very worried about at the moment are Chinese communities in countries like Malaysia, like Indonesia, where they are already the subject of discrimination and this current virus, I think, 
could fuel that racism further into, for example, mob violence. And so that's another thing, just the racism here is really problematic, but in Southeast Asia, I feel um, there's a lot of concern as well. I do think it's important to realize that the Chinese government is trying to use this to divert attention. And look at China today, 80 cities, major cities, cities of millions of people are under some form of quarantine, isolation, limitation. Several provinces, like Liaoning province, an industrial province that borders North Korea, are under the same kinds of controls. Roughly, I think it's 780 million Chinese are under some form. So to have the Chinese government complain that other countries are reacting when it is threatening its own citizens with forcible detention and quarantine is a little rich. I mean, I think the problem here is, again, it's, I think the trust issue is extraordinarily important. A lot of epidemiologists you know, looking at flight patterns and populations and stuff believe that the, the rates are higher. Citizen journalists in Wuhan, you know, I mean, have talked about cremations being up. There's just a lot of stuff out there that if you're nervous and you don't believe what the government is telling you, you're worried about those rates of transmission, and you're also worried about the death rates. I mean, it looks like it's around 2%. I mean, the estimates, roughly 2% death rate, around 5% have very serious reaction. You know, SARS killed about 10%, roughly. Ebola, on average, is about 40%. In specific instances, it could run up to 90. So we're talking about, you know, it's much less dangerous. But if you're not certain you believe all that, I mean, so governments are, are shutting down commerce and shutting down travel. I mean, airlines, it's not just the airline executives, it's the labor unions, the flight attendants, the pilots, they're saying, we, so, so I think we have to realize that there's a, no one is quite trusting in this, nobody thinks there's a handle on it, and I think that causes everyone to react very strongly. Well, I was just going to add to that, but just a quick point. I mean, there's some conflicting messages coming out too. That's where I want to go. So, so let's talk World Health Organization. China, of course, is a permanent member of the United Nations Security Council. That gives it a lot of influence over the World Health Organization. And we're not really sure how tough the WHO will be with China in demanding full disclosure. Also, and I'll start with Natasha on this, uh, of course, China, through its influence in UN bodies like the World Health Organization, prohibits Taiwan from sitting on those bodies. And so public health in Taiwan is potentially compromised by its lack of membership in the WHO. Natasha, can you start us in the WHO and then we'll see what other people think about this. Yeah, so a lot of people are very critical of the WHO right now, I think for many good reasons. I will say that the WHO's efforts to um, overly praise China's response efforts, which feel not particularly genuine to a lot of people, I suspect are an effort to ensure that they retain access to China. And look, I, I do have some understanding for that. Uh, the flip side is my understanding is American uh, health officials have offered to go to China to help since mid-January, but China refuses to be seen to be accepting help from the United States. So the WHO doesn't want to end up in that position. So, you know, I'm not sympathetic, but I, you know, there is some reason there. Uh, on Taiwan, like it's not a secret, I've written about it, as have you, it's a travesty, I think, that a country of 24 million people is excluded from an international organization that is dedicated to preserving public health. Any public health response is only as strong as its weakest link. Right. But leaving aside the politics of that, yeah. 
Does that actually compromise public health in Taiwan? Of course it does. So, and it demonstrates that for Beijing, politics trumps lives. So you have in Taiwan, yes, they can receive information secondhand, potentially from Chinese authorities or from other states, but it is secondhand. Uh, the example we use is SARS, which hit Taiwan also quite badly. Their death rate was much higher than China's. The WHO only sent um, inspectors and assistants to Taiwan after two people died from SARS-related illnesses. Um, and in this time, Taiwan is one of four countries in the world that's had a death from coronavirus outside of China. Um, they have a number of cases, they, and they also, there is a compromise to public health by not allowing Taiwan to be a part of the response. Taiwan has one of the best healthcare uh, systems in the world. They did, they've done really well with a whole bunch of diseases. And a large number of Chinese-speaking doctors. Of course they do. And they also, um, I think 38 million people travel through the largest airport every year. So the rest of the world is exposed by this being a weak spot in the link. It's a real problem, not just for China in dealing with this, but every country in the world that has any people who fly to Taiwan, which is almost all of them, should be worried. Can I move to one final question? I'm really curious to hear what the panelists think about this before we go out to audience questions. What does all this mean for the pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong? And I'll throw that to the whole panel. Any thoughts about what this means for Hong Kong? I think it just reinforces all of their reasons for not wanting to be under Beijing. I, I mean, I think the, the irony here is, I mean, you know, Beijing has greater authority, greater power, greater wealth, and it's managed to use it in a way that has offended people and pushed them away. And I think on an issue like this, you know, the demonstrations are down because everybody's very concerned about the health effects, but people were protesting, demanding that the government close the border. Well, exactly. That's one thing I'm that, curious about. So, so I mean, I, I think that it, it helps, it reinforces the sense we are different from China. We are Hong Kongers. We have a separate identity. We want to preserve that identity. So I think this reinforces that. It's going to make it even harder for China in the future to deal with the protest and the demands of it, especially the younger generation. Sue, did you want to jump Look, in? Just a, a quick word on that, because I was talking about it with Doug before we started the panel. But um, I really think Beijing, in its intransigence through Carrie Lam, has ended up with exactly what it doesn't want. It, it has created a new nation in Hong Kong. You know, remember at the height of the protest, the anthem that was developed, uh, the flag by the Chinese-Australian political cartoonist here? Um, and that's not going to go away. That's going to burn in the hearts of people. So the long-term problem. Right. Any final thoughts? Well, the direct result would be less people turn out to protests because they're scared of getting coronavirus and a lot of people are out there trying to buy masks, but uh, I agree with Doug and Sue, this will just reinforce you know, what they already believe. They want to be as far away from China as possible because it's literally contagious. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, but I, I think after this cri health crisis, more, you know, the, the, the pro-democracy movement won't die down. People are even angrier at China and the government. Natasha, final word. Well, we've talked a lot about trust this evening, and I think Hong Kong is a really interesting example where before this outbreak there was such low levels of trust in the central government that you almost see an overreaction. You see, yes, demands to close the border. You see attacks on quarantine sites, and it's because people don't believe they can trust a word the government says. And so, you know, I just think that 
if you were watching Hong Kong from Beijing, you would start to value that relationship of trust with the people and realize what happens when you really do let it sink to below zero even. Now, to those of you who have made this event possible, uh, do we have microphones for the audience? We do. All right. Emily, can we start uh, here? And then we'll work our way around the room. We'll try not to go all in one area. We'll skip around. OK. Um, my name is John Connor. Um, if I can posit a, something to the panel. Assume for a minute, one, that, that the, our government efforts to, to contain this virus are entirely ineffective, because I think that's almost certainly true. It's highly contagious. Chances it'll be contained are what we would in Australia call Buckley's. I think it's zero chance of containing it. Assume, two, that in fact it's a lot less deadly than has been made out. Assume that the 2% or less mortality is right, and that the figures that seem to indicate that people of my age should be really worried because it's 15% death rate, my grandkids should get two handkerchiefs and cough washages. Now, make those assumptions, and I think both of them can, can be supported by a fair degree of analysis. What do you think that does to a government which has thrown the whole place into panic, put a whole lot of people into semi-prison, and then turns out to be a lot of fuss about very little? So, what? oh no, no, no I'm so sorry, no, Doug, no, you no, go. No, no, no. <laughs> um, something that is out of the party's playbook is that the party takes credit for all successes and diverts blame for all failures. So, I'm not sure that I agree with your hypothesis, but if it were true, I think what you will see is a combination of the central government saying, look what we avoided look how well our leadership has saved you all from this terrible virus. And those terrible authorities in Hubei province, they did not share enough information early on, and so what were we supposed to do except to put your safety first? That would be my best guess at the party playbook. I think the problem is if your thesis is that it's not contained. So it's not just 73,000 people who get it. It's 730,000, maybe it's 7 million, maybe it's 70 million. I mean, I, whatever, whatever fits that. 2% of that's a lot. So if we're suddenly talking about 70 million, I mean, this is a country of 1.4 billion people. You know, huge, I mean, you go anywhere in China and you know, how, what's the population? Oh, it's 10 million, it's a small city, 10 million people. You're like, really? I mean, th this, is, this is a huge country, huge population. So if you imagine millions of people being infected, even 2% of that is a high death rate. I mean, a lot of people. It's not a high rate, perhaps, but it's a lot of people. And then on top of that, it's about 5% of people, they get septic. I mean, there's a lot of very serious, these people remember being sick, even if you're able to save them. I think that's still viewed as a very serious problem. And I think that it's still why in Australia and other countries want to work very hard to try to prevent it, because you're not certain that's going to work out that way, you hope. It's not going to destroy your society. But still, you don't want that kind of a, an impact. And just a huge chunk of your population suddenly can't work. I mean, again, you think of 70,000 people, you think of what's happened in Wuhan. Lots of people have gone down with this in a way that, you know, I mean, you look at the wards and everything. So, so I think that it's hard to dismiss it. The, the good news is it's not an extinctive, I and mean, this is not the Black Plague, where you're killing a third of the population or something. But I still think it has very serious implications. Thanks, uh, James Phillips. On, on the question of uh, diverting blame, I'm a bit surprised because uh, it's quite common for governments, particularly authoritarian governments, to blame either minorities in their own population or foreigners when something goes wrong. Um, are members of the panel surprised that we haven't seen um, 
more systematic attempts by the state to produce uh, fake news or, or whatever to blame either a minority in the Chinese population or foreigners for the situation? I, I, I'm pretty sure I have seen conspiracy theories around saying the Americans did this. Um, but I don't, I don't see any state attempts to say that yet, but I'm sure the blame will go to someone eventually that is not the party. Yeah, I think it's interesting that, you know, in, in Hong Kong, um, you can uh, blame the, you know, foreign black hands. In Xinjiang, you know, it's a, it's a, a Western smear campaign on, on the regime. But it has been quite interesting that there hasn't been any finger-pointing to um, some kind of malign external presence that's trying to undermine the regime. But I, w I have noticed Russian fake news getting up on this pretty quickly and talking about it as a CIA. It's always the CIA, isn't it? Yeah. Bioweapon gone wrong. But also the converse, that it was a, a bioweapon leak from a Chinese biowarfare um, factory in Wuhan. But, yeah, I have been a little bit surprised. I mean, Americans always wish the CIA was as efficient as other people <laughs> seem to think it is. Let's get some more questions in. We head over here. And, and let's try... Yes, please. Um, I'm interested in the implication of coronavirus for CCP. As you know, China is authoritarian state. Everything is about politics, uh, maybe including uh, coronavirus. There's undebatable evidence that coronavirus came out of a lab in Wuhan, and this lab is under control of PLA. Another evidence is that Pro the outbreak of the coronavirus, the Wuhan high-ranking officials and rich people left the Wuhan. Okay, let, let, let's, let's, let's let someone answer that, huh? and then we can take up. Let's let someone respond to these suggestions, and we'll go from there. Does someone want to take this? Um, I'm happy to. Uh, just on the evidence coming out of the buyer, the, the, the idea that the virus came out of a lab, uh, I think that's been quite widely discredited by virologists um, and other and other people. I, I haven't seen much evidence to support that, but I do think there is evidence that people knew about the concerns earlier than were made public. We know that Xi Jinping knew about them two weeks before the public was warned. We know that the PLA in Hubei knew about it in early January. So I have no doubt there was a cover-up early on, but I certainly would question the supposed leaks that the virus was linked to a lab of some kind. And we go here, please. Hi, uh, my name's Aston. I'd just like any one of you to comment on the supposed effective, supposedly effective social credit system um, that has been in China for a while. Uh, what does it say about the effectiveness of the social credit system, considering the outpour of anger and uh, resentment in Chinese social media? Uh, to be very honest, I think the social credit system is made more aware in the West than in China, if that makes sense. There's a lot of uh, social credit system, that may, like I have no doubt that you know once it's rolled out, um, it will be a very powerful um, platform that you know does collect a lot of personal information, does track your life, how you live your lives, and it will be quite dystopian. But I, there's a lot of fake news around the social credit system as well, and. Um, and it doesn't function as well as the party boasts. 
And so I'm not to say that we shouldn't be concerned about it, but I'm saying I think um, people in China are not so aware of such a system. And when they're venting about um, coronavirus, I very much doubt a lot of them at the back of their mind, they will think, oh, this will deduct my points. I shouldn't say this. Uh, I don't think that's the case yet. I mean, social credit system is supposed to roll out this year. And we're just not seeing really a lot of integration of different databases or clouds. Um, I, I, I think we need more time and evidence to, you know, we need to observe this uh, very, very ambitious plan a little longer. Not to say that it's not effective. I think you uh, may miss two very important things. One is to, to underestimate the economic impact of this crisis. Chinese economy was already very in very bad shape before the crisis. And now when the government applied this serious quarantine, although they want people to come back to work, but the quarantine actually prevent people from com coming back to work in the economic centers. There were millions and millions of uh, small business one out of uh, bankrupt. And then a lot of uh, employment that were huge impact on Chinese economy as well as uh, global economy. The second thing is you underestimate the anger against Xi Jinping. When you follow the social, uh, the, uh, social media, is that people were so anger with, angry with him because the virus took place in mid or early December. Xi Jinping covered up did not allow the local government to report to alarm the, the, the population and did not do anything okay. up until 20 or 23rd so of January. questions, let's get two answers. Okay, that, that, thanks, let's get two answers for you, please. Um, well, the economy first. Oh. And the anger. And the anger, <laughs> second, the economy. Sue, please. No. Well, no, I mean, the economic impact is huge. And imagine almost 800 million people under some restriction in terms of whether they have to stay home, they can't drive. I mean, it, it, they, they fly drones over Wuhan, and these are empty, empty streets. I mean, this is a city of millions of people. I mean, I was there 20 years ago. I mean, this, you know, it's a major city. Uh, so, and this is having an impact on supply chains. It's having, an, especially small businesses, people who provide food, restaurants. I mean, it's huge, and I think that's one reason why the impact will live on. It is extraordinarily important, and that's radiating out to all of China's trading partners. The longer this goes on, the bigger the problem's going to be with countries like Australia or the US or others that have close relationships. And I think this will hurt the party, because if it tries to be too glib, oh, that was easy, we got it all done, people are gonna wonder about the consequences. Do we have to do all this? On the other hand, if you can claim that, look, there is this life-threatening emergency. To some degree, people, I think, will go along, but they're going to have to try to recover quickly. It's not going to be easy. This is going to have long... I mean, I, I do an annual conference in July at Shenyang University with a group, and we don't know if this is going to happen because, I mean, th this is radiating out for months in terms of... So this is, going to, this is not ending anytime soon, even if the epidemic ends. The economic stuff's going to go on. Vicky, the anger? I, I agree. The anger is unprecedented, and as I said, you know, in the in the last five years, we've never seen such a strong reaction, such great anger towards the government. Uh, and it, but I do, 
I, I do maintain that, you know, I've reported on a lot of disasters. There's floods when the government purposely floods smaller cities, so less water go downstream to flood better, bigger cities. So it's, it is a government that will purposely flood some people to save their infrastructures, to, you know, to, to maintain a good look on the party's face. Um, so once, one thing I've noticed um, in my experience is that once the government does some kind of, gives some kind of, um, how do you say that? Uh, acknowledgement or compensation is the word. Compensation. Once the people get some sort of compensation, they'd rather live, live on. They'd rather move on. Because you see in China's history, there are so many political crises, you know. People have learned in history that it does you no good to go against the party. So I think as long as they can get by, they, they will try to get by. So. A lot of people, including myself, published in the media asking for Xi Jinping to resign immediately. Right. He not have to take responsibility for the peace crisis. That, that is the I'll, I'll, I'll be very interested to keep watching. After the debate, uh, in the back, please. Um, yeah, so in Tom's introduction, he noted that some people are taking the view that the Chinese system has worked actually very effectively in this crisis, and then there's the alternative narrative that it's been a complete political bungle. Um, and the narrative around that has actually changed a bit with the sort of recent revelations that Xi Jinping knew much earlier than we sort of seemed to previously assume. So, at, you know, a couple of weeks ago, the narrative was, well, it was the local officials, they stuffed up, the centre didn't know. But now it appears the centre did know earlier. So I'd just be interested in the panel's view on what do they actually think the political calculus was at the centre if it really was a cover-up at first? Because it's not as though Beijing couldn't sort of foresee all of the damage that we're talking about to their political reputation. So I think it's important to try and think about what was the calculus in, in driving the cover-up. Ideal for you? Um, I would honestly attribute the initial reaction to reflex more than anything else. So I would say that, uh, you know, Dr. Li Wenliang, we talked about quite a lot, is a good example. He does something that doesn't appear to be illegal. Two days later, the security forces turn up at his house and they say, you need to sign this document that says you understand what you've done is wrong and you take it back. Do we really think they knew and they'd been instructed to cover up this huge, possibly deadly virus? Or was this unapproved information but that the party instinctively and reflexively reacts to, to shut down? They do not tolerate any dissent, as Professor Fung has uh, laid out quite clearly and the panel. So I really think that the instinct at the beginning was to cover it up because it was not a part of the plan. It was not controlled and that in Xi Jinping's China is not acceptable. What you start to see at the very end of December where you have internal circulations in the Wuhan government, you have notifications going up to the center, they start to realize that actually they have something bigger that they need to deal with and it becomes relatively quickly over the course of a few weeks public and slightly more transparent. Right, thank you. And we have a final question in the back. Thank you. Um, my name is Rachel from the Epoch Times newspaper. My question is, it's really heartbreaking to see the coronavirus took a lot of lives for Chinese people. My question for the panel is, do you think communist system itself is more a deadly virus for Chinese society? Well, that's, that's quite a question. 
that's, that's quite a question to end on, so I'll issue final comments and just give, give this to the panel as uh, final, final thoughts on that. Do you want to start? We'll work down the panel. Sue, why don't you start us off? Uh, certainly, you know, we mentioned, I think we were talking about Chernobyl earlier at the beginning and in some of the op-eds, effectively, um, that was the line that um, basically uh, the Chinese communism, communism is not only putting China at risk and peril, uh, but the entire world. Um, I don't think, I think you could argue in the case of the Chernobyl analogy that that really did show up the dilapidated and systemic nature of failure in the Soviet Union, but I can't say that of the coronavirus yet. I mean, if, if it's a broader question of the communist system, I mean, look, my, I mean, depending on how you cut the numbers and what you blame people for, I would say under Mao Zedong, more people died than under Joseph Stalin or Adolf Hitler in terms of the own people. Great leap forward, the post-revolutionary period, cultural revolution, et cetera. Now, he didn't want all those people to die, I mean, he had great designs in the Great Leap Forward. We're going to have backyard steel production, and we have fabulous you know, uh, grain production. We're going to be sending this abroad in aid. I mean, there are reasons for all this. But certainly, the impact of Chinese communism on its people until the Deng Xiaoping reform era was a pretty awful one if you look at what happened to people at, at the bottom. You know, people in Zhongnanhai may have done well, but certainly out in the, in the hinterlands did not. And that is certainly, I mean, and uh, you can critique the, you know, Chiang Kai-shek in the era before that as well, but certainly the communist experience after the revolution was one that was a very bloody one for the Chinese people. Vicky? And I would say, you know, communism itself as an idea is, you know, it's, it's utopia, but it's not wrong or bad as a school of thought. But, of course, it's very debatable if the Chinese Communist Party is actually communist and if China as a country is communist. But just, you know, as we were discussing the Chinese Communist Party, as I've said before, all these disasters that had come before coronavirus, you know, they, they, they are... They're natural disasters to start with, and they become man-made disasters, like one China earthquake, like all these floods. The mismanagement and the censorship just made everything worse. And as Doc said, even before, you know, the Cultural Revolution, the anti-rightist campaign, so many people died. So, you know, is this philosophy of governance a virus? Sure. Um, is it more deadly than coronavirus? I, 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 I don't feel comfortable making that comparison, but I, I do think, you know, it, is, it has been heartbreaking to watch how people suffer under coronavirus. And my final, uh, on, on, under the Chinese Communist Party, oh my gosh. And my final thought on that is, um, you know, in the past 10 years or so, because the economy is going so well, I hear this argument a lot. Um, if you're a petitioner, of, call, of course you, you will be in trouble. If you're a Falun Gong practitioner, of course you'll be in trouble. But what coronavirus tells you is, under the Chinese Communist Party, no matter who you are, no matter what you believe in, because of the mismanagement and because of the censorship, you will be affected and um, your life will be in danger. And I think that's a very important lesson for us all to learn. Uh, so I think that is really important, this idea that viruses have no borders. For a long time, I think, in countries like Australia or the United States, we engage with problems in China when it directly affects us, when it is um, the security state and Huawei, when it is potential interference in our political systems. But 
we try pretty hard to look the other way if we can get away with it when it is a million Uyghurs in Xinjiang or another awful issue but that doesn't seem particularly related to us. We've known that it wasn't, it wasn't separate for a long time. There is an Australian citizen stuck in Xinjiang. There is Dr. Yang Hengjun uh, stuck in, in China under a false or a not functioning legal system. But this, I think, is the clearest example that I've seen of why authoritarian systems in China affect everyone. They affect Australians. And so I don't know whether communism is more deadly than a virus, but I do know that this is a really important wake-up call that internal governance in Xi Jinping's China actually should matter to everybody. Thanks. I actually don't view communism as a virus. I view freedom as a virus. And in my view, it's freedom that's going to infect China, not communism that's going to infect us. Tom, all yours. Well, Salvatore, that is a great way to win proceedings with that quote. Very good. We, we at CIS are unashamed believers in freedom. We're a classical liberal organisation, so we concur profoundly with those sentiments. Salvatore, well, look, um, we've only had a China program at CIS now f since April uh, last year. Sue and I created it in April with the generous support of uh, a foundation based in Hong Kong. And uh, we've had some wonderful uh, events during the course of the last uh, 10 months. Um, we've had, among other things, Anastasia Lin, who was a former Miss World Canada, uh, she addressed various CIS events throughout the course of last year. Anastasia, in 2015, won the Miss World China contest. Um, Miss, she's, she's ethnic Chinese background, but she won the Miss Canada uh, contest. But because she'd spoken out about human rights abuses in China, the Beijing government denied her entry to com in Beijing to compete in the world, Miss World competition. So naturally, she became a front page story on the New York Times, Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal. So we had her at various events last year raising questions about China's domestic record. We also hosted the US Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, at the beautiful New South Wales State Library reading room. And um, we did an event with Mike Pompeo and the Foreign Minister, Maurice Payne, and I subjected both of them to some decent questions. And Pompeo's central message was that Australia should not be so dependent on China. It will come home to roost. Chickens will come home to roost. And then in Canberra, uh, about a week or so later in August of last year, we had the pleasure of hosting John Mearsheimer, the Distinguished Professor of International Relations from the University of Chicago. And he debated the Distinguished ANU Professor of Defence Studies, uh, Hugh White, at Canberra's Hyatt Hotel in front of about 550 people. It was a great night. And Mearsheimer's argument was essentially that if China's rise continues unabated, and it's an important condition, if China's rise continues unabated, that it makes sense that China will assert itself in the world where its national interests grow, its power will increase, and will assert a sphere of influence in areas on which its future prosperity and stability depend. And China will try to dominate the region. And Mishama's argument was that the United States will go to great lengths to stop Uncle Sam from dominating the region and will hope and expect allies such as Australia to support America in an anti-containment anti-China containment strategy. And Hugh White, of course, made the other argument, which was basically that America is in strategic retreat under both Democrats and Republicans, and that Australia has to recognise that China will dominate the region and we have to adjust defence policy accordingly. It was a great debate. So we've been in this space for the last year, but I have to say, I thought tonight, 
given the novel nature of the subject. I mean, coronavirus has only been a front-page story now for probably a month, five, five weeks in the Australian press. And I think tonight we've heard uh, an outstanding panel, uh, not always agreeing with each other, sometimes there's overlap. Um, but Vicky, and Natasha, Doug, Sue, I thought were sound in style and substance, and I thought it was brilliantly moderated by my colleague, Salvatore. So on behalf of CIS, please thank our guests. Well done, mate.